Hi, and welcome back to the Itchy Podcast. My name is Lindsay, and I'm the Managing Editor for Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, or Itchy. Itchy is the official journal for the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. In each episode of the Itchy Podcast, we hear from authors of articles recently published in the journal. Today's episode features three articles from the November 2019 issue. That's volume 40, issue 11. First up, Callie Van Langen, Lisa Dumko, Katie Axford, and Andrew Jameson discuss their study, Evaluation of a Multifaceted Approach to Antimicrobial Stewardship Education Methods for Medical Residents. Then, Paula Strazel discusses her article, Incidents and Risk Factors of Non-Device-Associated Urinary Tract Infections in an Acute Care Hospital. And lastly, Richard Martinello and James Arbogast discuss their article, Nursing Preference for Alcohol-Based Hand Rub Volume. Listeners should note that the article, Evaluation of a Multifaceted Approach to Antimicrobial Stewardship Education for Medical Residents, is available for journal CME. Go to learningce.shade-online.org and browse the course catalog for Journal CME 2019 to quickly and easily earn your credits. All Journal CME is free for Shea members. After listening, please be sure to go to the November issue to read the full articles discussed in this episode. The first article we're discussing today is Evaluation of a Multifaceted Approach to Antimicrobial Stewardship Education Methods for Medical Residents. Joining us are Callie Van Langen, Lisa Dumko, Katie Axford, and Andrew Jameson. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us. To begin, would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, everyone. My name is Callie Van Langen. I'm a faculty member at the Ferris State University College of Pharmacy. I'm Lisa Dumko. I'm the Antimicrobial Stewardship Pharmacist at Mercy Health St. Mary's. I'm Katie Axford. I'm also a faculty at Ferris State University College of Pharmacy, and I work as a clinical pharmacist with the Family Medicine Service at Mercy Health St. Mary's. And I'm Andrew Jameson. I'm an infectious disease uh, consultant at Mercy Health St. Mary's, and I'm faculty at Michigan State Medical School College of Human Medicine. Great. Well, thank you all for joining us today. To start, will you give us a little bit of the background for your study? Absolutely. So we got the idea for our project in October 2017. Um, The clinical faculty and the antimicrobial stewardship pharmacists work with the academic teaching teams daily to focus on improving antibiotic prescribing and ensure optimal treatment for our patients. Uh, Based on our daily experiences and knowing the different antimicrobial stewardship education methods that were being employed, it seemed that some of the teams were doing a little bit of a better job adhering to guidelines and our recommendations than others. Um, And also based on our day-to-day interactions, we experienced that some teams were more willing to accept the pharmacist's recommendations to improve their antimicrobial prescribing and that some of those people were engaging in these educational methods on a more regular basis. And so we kind of wanted to explore that a little bit further. Um, We knew that we were going to need a physician champion, and I distinctly remember the day that we walked down to Dr. Jameson's office to pitch the idea to him. Um, I work with the internal medicine team, and he asked me if I was trying to make my team look bad. Um, And so I said I wasn't trying to make my team look bad, but at the same time, if we knew that these educational methods were effective, um, then we wanted to have evidence to show that they were beneficial and helpful to our teams. Um, And up until that point, it seemed that some teams were a little bit more resistant to some of these educational methods or making time in their days for these methods. And so, again, having strong evidence to support the value is really what we were trying to to go for. 
And so for this study, what exactly did you do and what did you find? Yeah, so this was a retrospective cohort study. We basically took three provider groups or prescribing groups from our institution. Um, we looked at the Family Medicine Residency Service, the Internal Medicine Residency Service, and then our hospitalist group. Um, and we picked three fairly uncomplicated infections. We looked at urinary tract infections, community-acquired pneumonia, and cellulitis. And we just looked across at antibiotic prescribing, both on admission throughout the hospitalization and at discharge, and compared adherence or concordance with our institutional guidelines across those groups. So we collected a lot of data, um, and there's a lot of information in our in our article. But in summary, we found that the the groups that got the most amount of education really did a better job at adhering to guideline recommended durations of therapy particularly. Something we did find that I think was really positive is that across the board, most of our prescribers do a really fantastic job of choosing the right antibiotics, um, which I think really just speaks to the strength of our stewardship program and our communication across our institution. But we did find that with increasing education efforts, uh, we were able to make an impact on durations of therapy at discharge. And so what would you say are the key takeaways from this study for itchy readers? So I think our key takeaways would be that having a, a comprehensive and kind of aggressive stewardship program, the empiric therapy upfront decisions should be pretty consistent between teams that have a lot of stewardship team contact and those that don't. So we saw all of our teams picking the right antibiotic up front, but the discharge antimicrobial therapy was where we really saw a difference with the increased contact with the stewardship team. So the Family Medicine Service has the bi-weekly teaching rounds where they see the stewardship team leaders, and we really saw them adhere more to our institutional guidelines for durations of therapy and really that short course duration of therapy. And I think right now with the literature, that's a big question is what can we do to improve discharge antibiotic prescribing? And maybe this is a part of that solution is having more consistent contact with the stewardship team. And lastly, can you talk about the limitations of this study and any future research questions that it may have raised? Yeah, this is Andrew Jameson. So I think the biggest limitation is this is all uh, observational. We're looking back at some of these questions. So we really cannot point to this as being a causation effect. So everything we're seeing is uh, basically an assumption about what we're seeing. Uh, I think that is the biggest limitation with a lot of these kind of research projects. In the future, what I really think where we're going is talking more about the behaviors of prescribers and the motivations of prescribers at discharge. There's something about discharging someone from the hospital and feeling the need to give them more antibiotics and somehow that is a better idea. So I think there is a lot of opportunity to investigate some of those motivations for prescribers and targeting stewardship to give backup, to give feedback, to give maybe follow-up as an outpatient, to do something to give prescribers more confidence in saying that when they leave the hospital, the short course therapy that is guideline concordant will be effective. 
So speaking from a clinician, you always feel nervous when you're letting someone go into the community, whereas when you have someone in the hospital, you can watch them every day and you feel good about the treatment course you're giving them. When they're leaving the hospital, you feel like you want to make sure that they're not coming back or make sure that you're going to treat the infection, and I think that is one of the biggest concerns. So tackling the motivation of the clinician and the motivation of the uh, prescriber is really the next step to understanding how do we limit those uh, prolonged antibiotic courses at discharge. So I think that is one of the biggest things that's still a question out there, and how do we tackle that? Additionally, we don't really have a lot of data or help with how to tackle some of these discharges on complicated infections. We really targeted three very um, manageable disease states with cellulitis, urinary tract infections that were uncomplicated and uncomplicated pyelonephritis, along with community-acquired pneumonia, these all have very specific guidelines and very specific durations of therapy that are delineated in the literature. When you start talking about things like endocarditis or things like uh, epidural abscesses or osteomyelitis, many times the treatment course is much more nuanced and much more tailored to the individual patient and the individual organism. So I think that uh, discharge reconciliation and duration of therapy for some of these more complicated diseases is really uh, something that we need to look at moving forward. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Jameson, and thank you all for joining us today on the Itchy podcast. As I mentioned, listeners can read the full article in the November issue of Itchy. Thank, thank you. you so much. Our next guest is Paula Strassel, first author of the article, Incidents and Risk Factors of Non-Device-Associated Urinary Tract Infections in an Acute Care Hospital. Dr. Strassel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. To begin, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, so like you mentioned, my name is Paula Strassel. I am now an assistant professor in the Department of Surgery at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And actually, this work that we're talking about was part of my dissertation work that I got while I was at the Department of Epi uh, at at UNC. And can you give our listeners a little bit of the background for this study? Yeah, so I was interested in looking at hospital infections generally. Um, And while looking at the literature, we found that obviously over the past decade, there have been substantial decreases in device-associated infections across the United States because they've been focused on both for prevention and surveillance. So one of the questions that I had was, what is this impact on the infections that are non-device associated? So UTIs where there's no catheter in place or the patient doesn't have a catheter at all during their hospitalization. And then also to look at some of the risk factors for them because since surveillance isn't really done on these infections, there isn't a whole lot out there about what potential risk factors for these infections are. And the nice thing about uh, UNC hospitals is that for the past several decades, um, I think the entirety of their um, surveillance practices, they've been doing active surveillance on both device and non-device associated infections using the CDC uh, case definitions and methodology. So we were able to accurately capture non-device associated UTIs in the database um, in their registry. And what exactly did you do in this study and what did you find? So what we did is I took all of the electronic medical records for adults that were admitted to our hospitals between 2013 and 2017. 
and link them to the uh, hospital epidemiology database where they've been capturing these uh, infections. And then we took that database and we decided to look at trends over time to see if the rate of device and non-device associated UTIs had changed. We also used a subset of this data, specifically 2015 through 2017, because it was after we implemented EPIC, so we had more granular data available. So we used those two years of data to do a risk factor analysis where we looked at several patient characteristics, including age, sex, comorbidities, some of their uh, treatments. So we looked at inpatient medication use, whether or not they had a catheter, an indwelling urinary catheter, so the one associated with the device definition, but also suprapubic catheters and nephrostomy tubes, which are not part of the device definition for catheter-associated UTIs whether or not they underwent a urologic procedure during their hospitalization, and some of their um, injury severity scores, so their morse fall risk and the MUSE score. So we did this analysis, and we analyzed data, and we found that there was actually several potential modifiable risk factors. So importantly, we saw that urinary retention, suprapubic catheterization, and nephrostomy tubes appeared to increase the risk of these infections, the estimates were relatively imprecise because they were so rare, but we did get hazard ratios of between, you know, 1.5 to 2.5 for these. But then we also saw that there were several um, comorbidities associated, so peptic ulcer disease, immunosuppression, trauma admissions were more likely to have these infections, and also opioid use was associated with increased uh, risk for non-device UTIs. So some of these things are potentially modifiable, which is encouraging because we could potentially target them for uh, future studies to see if we could reduce the risk of these infections. But I think most interestingly, we found that at our hospital, over 70% of our UTIs are now non-device associated. And the current targeted surveillance practices for these device-associated infections should probably need to be reconsidered in light of this changing landscape. And, you know, we've done such a good job across the country and at our hospital in reducing device-associated infection rates, that device-associated infections are no longer a, a, a substantial proportion of all the infections we're seeing. So we really need to start looking at these non-device infections because the rates haven't changed over time and, you know, patients are potentially at risk. And so you just touched on this a little bit, but can you talk a little bit more about what you think are the key takeaways of this study for itchy readers? Yeah, so like I just mentioned, we saw that the rate of non-device associated UTIs remained stable between 2013 and 2017 in our study. But during that time period, the proportion of non-device associated UTIs actually increased to the point where almost 75%, so three out of every four UTIs we're seeing in our hospital are now non-device associated. Why this is important is that the current targeted surveillance practices that are recommended by the CDC and that most hospitals implement focus exclusively on catheter-associated UTIs and don't do surveillance on non-device associated UTIs which means that most hospitals aren't looking for these infections, they don't know the rates of these infections, and they're not really focusing on preventing these infections. And while historically these catheter-associated infections were the majority of UTIs, it's no longer the case. So we really need to start thinking about 
whether or not now that we are in, you know, almost 2020 and we've been doing surveillance on these infections for close to 30 years, if we really need to start changing our surveillance practices and expand to outside of device-associated infections and expand to hospital-wide surveillance if it's not currently being done, as opposed to, you know, just doing it on ICUs, for example. And then with our risk factor analysis, we identified several potentially modifiable risk factors for these infections. So future research could definitely explore the impact of things like opioid use or whether some kind of intervention can be done on opioid use or some of these other catheterization techniques to prevent these infections uh, in our hospitalized adults. And lastly, did your findings or the study limitations raise any future research questions that either you plan to investigate or that you'd like to see investigated? Yeah, so there were obviously several things that could come out of this research. Um, some of the limitations is that we just looked at things, so specifically for opioid use, we just looked at whether or not a patient received an opioid during their hospitalization and whether that increased their risk for subsequent infection. But we didn't look at dose or duration or indication for some of the, for the opioid use in our patients. So it would definitely be interesting to delve deeper into the effect of this medication of opioid, um, opioid medication use on these patients because it could help kind of give a better understanding of what's going on there and where we could potentially uh, intervene to reduce the risk of uh, non-device associated UTIs in these patients. Obviously, uh, additional research is needed. We're only one hospital system. So our patients may be slightly different than other hospitals. So replicating these findings is very important because to date, I believe this is the first and only analysis in the United States looking at risk factors for these infections, kind of in this larger scale. So additional studies looking at the same thing to hopefully confirm our findings or if they find different findings, you know, looking into why we see these differences between our studies would also be really interesting. And then finally, you know, there's other types of non-device associated infections. So, for example, we also actually we will be having a paper published hopefully in the next couple months um, where we did this a very similar analysis looking at non-device associated pneumonia. So looking at pneumonia where there was no ventilator in place and then also looking at other things like non-device associated bloodstream infections, which are currently working on and then other types of non-reportable infections as well. I think overall, as uh, researchers and as epidemiologists and infection control preventionists in hospitals, we've done a really good job at trying to reduce the rates of these infections that we've been focusing on. And so now generally, I think the idea is that we need to start looking outside what we've been focusing on because they are now, at least as far as the numbers and the number of uh, infections that we're seeing, they may be the larger problem because we've done such a good job in reducing the rates of infections and the ones that we've been targeting for the past 10 or 15 years. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Strassel, for joining us today on the Itchy Podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Our last guests today are Richard Martinello and James Arbogast, two of the authors of the article, Nursing Preference for Alcohol-Based Hand Rub Volume. Dr. Martinello and Dr. Arbogast, thank you so much for joining us today. To start, would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, Lindsay. My name is Rick Martinello. I'm an associate professor of internal medicine and pediatrics 
in infectious diseases at the Yale School of Medicine, and I serve as the medical director for infection prevention for the Yale New Haven Health System. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Arbogast. I'm a scientist with Gojo, the makers of Purell. Uh, do a lot of work around advancing the science uh, and understanding of hand hygiene and how it affects outcomes. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. To start, will you give us a little bit of the background for this study? So, so we were interested in doing a study to better understand um, how nurses perceived the appropriate volume for an alcohol-based hand rub uh, because of not only a lot of variability that we see in the literature and you know we hear from other institutions, but certainly at my institution, we receive a lot of feedback about how our nurses and other staff feel about the, the hand rub that we provide for them. And we do get a number of concerns about um, the volume being uh, too great or taking too long to dry on their hands and other issues which may be barriers that uh, lead to a lower compliance rate with hand hygiene than what would be optimal. And so we chose to uh, uh, do this study to better understand uh, what volumes our nursing staff perceive as being the, the correct volume. The thing, uh, the thing that I'd like to build on there is that uh, another, another motivation for us was just really learning how much is used and how wide the variation is. And we developed these, these bottles that were used, the counting caps, as we thought about this globally, because in Europe, there's a push to use three milliliters, if you can believe that, three milliliters per dose. And that's really an artifact of a test method that was developed in the 1970s. Uh, so we really just wanted to learn across a wide variety of settings how much is actually used. And so in this particular study, what exactly did you do and what did you find? So what, what we did was we um, have a, a large hospital and we focused on the inpatient units. And out of our 60 plus inpatient units, uh, we were able to uh, enroll eight units uh, into the study. And those units included a few ICUs, a few pediatric wards, and the remainder were medical surgical wards. We worked with the nurses on their, those units and we provided them with 125 milliliter bottles of alcohol-based hand rub each. And each of those bottles included the special caps that Dr. Arbogast mentioned. So these caps would record uh, the opening of the bottles. And through that, we were able to observe how many times during the course of a shift the nursing staff um, used that product uh, for hand hygiene. We did speak to the nurses repeatedly about uh, trying their best to use those bottles during each hand hygiene uh, opportunity. And also uh, to try to, while this wasn't a blinded study per se, uh, we did try to uh, be somewhat nebulous uh, with our nursing staff when we were uh, discussing what the hypotheses were of the study which were being tested. And we really encouraged them to uh, use the bottles um, as they would normally use them to perform hand hygiene. We encourage them to use the volume of um, the alcohol-based hand rub 
that they were really most comfortable with. And we guided them that we were really trying to better understand their patterns of hand hygiene uh, performance uh, over the course of the day. We provided them with a, a new bottle um, each uh, day uh, during three uh, shifts. And what we did was we measured the amount, uh, the volume of the alcohol-based hand rub um, in each bottle prior uh, to giving it to them. And then when they returned the bottles after their shift, we measured um, the volume of the hand rub present that was remaining in the bottle. And we were able to determine the total volume that they used during the shift. And then of course, by interrogating the cap, we were able to determine how many times they opened that bottle. And we made the assumption that each time they opened the bottle, they were performing hand hygiene. And so overall, what we were able to do across um, this group of nurses is really identify what the typical dose of the alcohol-based hand rub uh, was, which they were using, uh, but then also how much variation uh, there was across that group of nurses. The other thing that we did in this study uh, was to measure their hand size. And we used a validated technique to estimate the uh, surface area of individuals' hands. And so we were able to determine if they had small, medium, or large hands. And then we also had our nurses perform a survey uh, to really better understand what their thoughts were about, the, about alcohol-based hand rubs, what they thought about how uh, the hand rubs worked, and also uh, what they thought about um, the hand rubs uh, volume and drying time and, and other aspects of, of its usability. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about the results of your study? Yeah, so, so we, we were able to enroll um, over 50 nurses into the study. And overall, we were able to get measurements across 140 nurse shifts of use of the alcohol-based hand rub product. And what we had identified overall was that the typical average volume that was used by our nursing staff was a little over one milliliter, so 1.09 milliliters, uh, but we did see a, a great deal of variation. A few notable uh, findings from the study, you know, one is that uh, we actually found a negative correlation between the number of times our nursing staff were performing hand hygiene and the volume that they were using. We found a, a very small decrement such that e each additional time they were performing hand hygiene, they used just a slight amount less of the alcohol-based hand rub product. And it wasn't clear that this, this small difference uh, was a significant amount. However, what it reflected uh, to us was that essentially the, the busier our nursing staff were, um, suggested by the times that they had opportunities to perform hand hygiene, uh, they were using a little bit less hand rub when they were busier. A, a couple of other interesting findings I would add are that we did not see an association between hand size and the volume of hand sanitizer that was used. Oftentimes, there's been speculation that people with larger hands would use more or should use more and vice versa for smaller hands. But in this study, we did not see that relationship. And we also, in the survey results, the subjective survey results, we found that 
there was not an understanding amongst the nurses that the more alcohol-based hand rub you use, the more you will reduce the bacteria and microorganisms on your hands. So they did not understand that. And, and that's been consistent uh, across a lot of different hospitals and, and studies. So to me, if I take that back to the variability of the dose, it, and we put this in the, in the paper, it, it might argue to use these automated touch-free systems because that will guarantee that there's a controlled dose, a, a dose that's always coming out. So you, you don't have that risk of someone using too little. So what would you say are the key takeaways from this study for itchy readers? Well, I, I think um, you know, Jim just mentioned one of the key takeaways, and, and that being that there is a great deal of variability in the amount of alcohol-based hand rub that our nurses felt comfortable using. And unfortunately, we did not see any positive correlation between hand size and the amount of product that was used. And this really leads to a concern that especially for our staff who have larger hands, that there may be an insufficient volume of the hand rub that's being used to effectively decontaminate their hands. And I think a second point, you know, is that you know, we oftentimes get asked about the utility of individual um, hand rub containers that people can carry around with them. And I think our study really leads to concern for the use of, of those in the healthcare setting uh, because oftentimes our uh, nursing staff were found uh, not to be using a volume that would have been sufficient to really knock down the amount of uh, bacteria and microbes on their skin to the desired level. And so I think, uh, you know, using the electronic delivery mechanisms to deliver a consistent dose is a more desirable situation. But I, I think a, a third issue really gets to, you know, while it's nice to have the electronic dispensers delivering a consistent dose, uh, it's not clear to me at least that one size fits all situation is, is really adequate. And when we do have um, our staff with, with larger hands, are they getting enough of the, the dose of alcohol-based hand rub from these electronic devices to really decontaminate their hands sufficiently? I think this is an area uh, where more work needs to be done. Yeah, I think the only, that was really well stated by Dr. Martinello. I think the only thing I would add is that it also highlights the importance of trying to educate the healthcare personnel, the healthcare professionals. In this case, we only studied the nurses, but I know there's a growing interest to, to have kind of micro training, micro education, bursts of training, and around the importance of dosing with respect to hand hygiene. Uh, we study hand sanitizers here, but the same could be said for, for soap. If you use too little soap, you're really not effectively cleaning your hands. So education, that's this, I think is improved education is, is a takeaway and an area for further research. So you just touched on this a little bit, but my last question is uh, whether the limitations of your study or its findings raised any future research questions that you'd like to see investigated. I, I think what we, what we need to investigate is, is really how we can best and most efficiently deliver the proper 
alcohol-based uh, hand rub dose to our healthcare providers, you know, recognizing that our healthcare providers have hands of, of varying sizes. And part, part of the trade-off, though, that needs to be considered is what's really acceptable to our staff, is we certainly need to ensure that they're comfortable uh, with the amount that gets delivered to them. Uh, they need to feel that it dries in a sufficient time to be effective, but a short enough time not to impede their work. And they really need to uh, feel comfortable that uh, it's not going to have a negative impact um, on their skin. So I think there's a lot of room for future work in these areas, both to develop that volume um, and how to deliver it, uh, but also, as, as Dr. Arbogast mentioned, uh, to really educate our staff about the need to ensure that they have an adequate amount of, of hand rub delivered to effectively decontaminate their hands. And building on that, the, one of the limitations is we only tested one formulation. And as Dr. Martinello mentioned, um, you know, the formulation can have an impact on the efficacy, how many, how many bacteria are reduced and how fast, and the skin condition and the experience. And all of those things need to come together. So that formulation needs to be built into the further research around what's what's the right dose and how do you manage it for people with different hand sizes? Well, thank you, Dr. Martinello and Dr. Arbogast for joining us today on the Itchy Podcast. You're welcome. This concludes episode 14 of the Itchy Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes and thanks for listening.